Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. I'm Srinath Raghavan and this is a podcast presented by Carnegie India. Every two weeks, we bring to you voices from India and around the world as we unpack the role of technology, the economy and foreign policy in shaping India's relationship with the world. Earlier this year, India tested its anti-satellite weapons capability called Mission Shakti, making it only the fourth country to conduct an ASAT missile test after the United States, Russia and China. This renewed focus on space activity comes at an interesting juncture in geopolitics. The prospect of a new and reinvigorated space race in some ways is reminiscent of the Cold War era competition for the mastery of space between the United States and the former Soviet Union. Last year, President Trump announced the creation of the US Space Force, the sixth independent military service branch of the United States Armed Forces, which led many to caution against the increased militarization of space in the years to come. Complicating this scenario is the entry of several private players into the space industry for commercial and development purposes. All this has led to calls for regulatory and governance mechanisms to be put in place and global norms of behavior for outer space. To discuss these issues with us today, we have Dr. Rajeshwari Pillai Rajagopalan. Raji is a distinguished fellow and head of the Nuclear and Space Policy at Observer Research Foundation, New Delhi. Prior to joining ORF, Raji served as Assistant Director at the National Security Council Secretariat from 2003 to 2007. A prolific writer, she has several publications to her credit, both as an author and an editor. Most recently, she co-edited Space Policy 2.0, Commerce, Policy, Security and Governance Perspectives. Radhi's writings have appeared in some of the leading journals of international relations and security studies. Raji Rajagopalan, welcome to Interpreting India. Thank you. I want to start by asking you about the current conjuncture between geopolitics and space programs. You know, we all know that during the Cold War, space was an integral part, at least of our imagination of what the geopolitical competition between the superpowers was. But in the recent years, there seems to have been some kind of a revival of space as being a very integral part of global power politics and diffusion of power as it is taking place. So what, in your opinion, accounts for the revival of space, so to speak? Or has space just been there all along and we've not been paying attention? Uh, thank you, Srinath. I think that's a fascinating question because uh, you are beginning to see a fresh kind of a competition playing out in space. And this is a function of the changing balance of power equations. Um, I think that's a primary driver for the renewed competition and the renewed attention that space is getting. Um, so if you look at the earlier era, space was mostly used for strategic uh, purposes by both the US and the Soviet Union for conventional military operations. That began to change in the current. And I think that's a big differentiation between the earlier Cold War era politics and today's space race in a sense. So, the, but, uh, but even then, I think uh, you did see a whole range of anti-satellite tests and the kind of space, military space programs uh, by both the superpowers of the day. Uh, and that kind of played on till about the mid 80s for instance one of the i think the last uh, anti satellite test done by the us was in the mid 80s and after that there was an unwritten moratorium in place in terms of uh, you know this is going to contribute to further deterioration of the space environment and therefore uh, neither of the countries pursued further programs of that kind uh, and come 2007 so after a 
break of about two decades, you are beginning to see that competition playing out. Uh, the first sign of the revival of the competition was with the Chinese anti-satellite test. Uh, they have been trying to do the test from 2005 onwards, but the first successful ASAT test by China was in January 2007. And that gave way to a fresh thinking about to what are the kind of measures India needs to put in place uh, as a way of deterrence, as a way to protect our own assets, because we have a financial stake as well. Uh, in the in in our in the space program, and so what needs to be done? So even within India, it, that gave spurt to a new debate, and across the board, you have the political leadership. And the military leadership, the Indian Air Force came out talking about it. And even the uh, technocrats, they talked about as to what we need to do uh, to protect as well as to deter uh, things in outer space. Uh, and of course, that led to the finally the uh, India's own uh, ASAT test in 2019, March. Uh, but before that, I think uh, then followed by the uh, Chinese ASAT test, you had the U.S. conducting another test in 2008. Uh, that was somewhat slightly more responsible, at least that was conducted in a, in, on a low Earth orbit. So it did not result in uh, a long lasting debris cloud, so to say, unlike the Chinese ASAT test that was done at very high altitude, which has created uh, about 3000 pieces of space debris. And those are going to be long lasting for a, for a decade. It's going to last there. So overall, this has given way to more competition. Uh, and I would say the primary driver is the changing uh, power dynamics, uh, both in Asia and beyond. I think we will definitely come back to unpack some of those issues, particularly about the Chinese anti-satellite test and the Indian reaction to it. But I just want to stay with the very important insight with which you began. You said that during the Cold War, uh, space mattered primarily because it was a demonstration of technological capability and prowess. Whereas today, space matters because it is very closely intertwined with military power itself. Could you give us a sense of in what ways modern military power is reliant on space-based assets. So uh, the older decades uh, when the competition between the US and Soviets were playing out, of course, there was a lot of national prestige and uh, which would be the country to do the first in land on the moon, first to do this first. So there was a lot of that kind of a demonstration that was happening. Uh, and also, but I think that all panned out in the, in the, by the sixties and seventies that began to kind of slow down. And by the eighties, even the, um, uh, ASAT programs begin to kind of wind down, so to say. Uh, and primarily space was used for monitoring arms control measures. Uh, but that's, that was, uh, that was still a kind of a acceptable way of dealing because the competition was primarily between the two powers. Today, you have something like 80 active players in outer space and with about 12 uh, countries that can actually launch satellites. Um, so you have a fairly large mix of countries uh, from Latin America to Africa who are developing capabilities, but you have more established players in Asia, uh, Americas. And the more dangerous part uh, part of this whole competition is that they we are today talking about using space assets for military conventional military operations. And is it true to say that it's not just the United States which is vulnerable to these, but in effect, many Military is even amongst mid-tier powers, right? Absolutely. And a simple thing like global positioning systems uh, are crucial to the way that uh, military operations are being planned and executed today. And which in turn seems to have led some countries to think for alternatives to it. For instance, the Russians are developing GLONASS, which is their own sort of homegrown version of uh, this thing. And they were looking for partners to uh, join up that particular venture. So so do you think there is going to be uh, a move towards creating parallel systems which will have military applications which in turn will then lead to a proliferation of capabilities to target those. 
So there are two, a couple of different things that are happening. So today when you have uh, a sort of any disruption or uh, you're trying to target a particular system, it has not just a, a military impact, but it is also going to impact the civilian because the extensive uh, use of space in the civil economic sector is so much that uh, you are reliant, whether it's your, you're going to an ATM to pull out money, you whether you're asking for directions through your Google map, everything is so linked to space, yet we don't recognize that dependency and how any disruption to these space activities can have multiple effects. So so it's global. The effect is going to be global. The effect is going to be sect it's not going to be a sector specific, but it's going to be across the board in a sense. So that those are the kind of uh, realities which most of the time we are not thinking about it and we are not recognizing and acknowledging that uh, appropriately. Uh, but uh, uh, alternative systems are coming about because uh, one, because you don't want to depend on the GPS alone. For instance, uh, India itself is developing a, a much smaller version of our a GPS uh, called the IRNSS, Indian Regional Navigation Satellite System. Uh, there are components which we uh, kind of rely on the uh, on the US for upgrading the some of the system navigation system. Gagan system, for instance, uses the GPS to upgrade the uh, system, uh, the navigation program. Uh, but the, essentially, there has been an effort to create your own system. By though, for instance, the Chinese system uh, is meant to be operational across the in, in, in Asia Pacific region by 20, uh, 2025, and they are meant to have a full global presence by about 2030. So there are efforts to create this global networks, parallel networks, so that you are not reliant on one particular party, whether it is the US. Uh, but I think there are also efforts by everybody to kind of test out and tease out these new counter space capabilities uh, to create those vulnerabilities. Um, so uh, extensive use of cyber means and electronic warfare. These are because you don't necessarily need to now uh, go for an anti-satellite capability that would also create a lot more spatna, satellite um, space debris, for instance, because there's already a huge amount of junk that is floating around in space. So you don't want to add to that, but at the same time, do certain things. And cyber means are very cheap. In a sense, uh, if you if you want to buy an uh, a jamming device, you can do it, buy it online for a couple of hundred uh, bucks, actually. So it's not that... You know, these are uh, not easy to find or easy to operate. I think for about a decade now, since 2008, actually, you have been seeing increasing number of uh, incidents, but they are more in terms of testing out the capabilities, testing out the technologies, teasing out the capabilities. So they have not created long-term disruption, long-time disruption, but they have just created a kind of, you know, pinprick to just see, okay, whether my this particular technology to disrupt a particular service or deny a particular service, whether it's working or not. So there have been enough number of uh, incidents over the last decade or so. Mostly they have, these have been uh, between US and China, uh, but there have been, Russians have been developing some of these capabilities as well. And both Russia and uh, the U.S. have their own Cold War legacy technology as well. So if they want to activate new capabilities, counter space capabilities, co-orbital anti-satellite capability, it's not difficult. It's not It's not going to be a time-consuming process uh, for them to develop some of these capabilities. Uh, and when, for instance, uh, Russia, like you said, the U.S. is not the only target country. Uh, if China, for instance, is developing certain capabilities with the U.S. in mind, they can easily target us. And I think that's the... Till the Chinese ASAT test, we never 
bothered about an ASAT capability because we were thought we were thinking that these are big boys' toys. We don't need to spend our hard-earned resources on developing these kind of capabilities. But that was a wake-up call to the kind of threat that exists in our neighborhood. And uh, space being a global commodity doesn't make a difference whether it is in our neighborhood or not. But the fact that China has has gone on to develop this capability did uh, sort of. Uh, sent home the message very loud and clear that this is a threat we need to be cognizant of and address in a way that is, you know, that's going to protect our assets. So it seems that space is becoming very crowded increasingly. There are so many actors, states which did not have the capabilities in the past now seem to have the capabilities. The diffusion of this technology has meant that there are many more actors who are piggybacking on other states to create their own assets in space. And then, as you're saying, because of the kind of multifarious civil and military applications of space-based assets, there is a move towards creating capabilities which can target those and bring them down. Those could be kinetic, they could be non-kinetic. I'm not sure whether you can envisage a future where non-state actors might have some skin in this particular game uh, as it is playing out. So, I mean, are we, is it then fair to say that we are in a situation where Talking of something like an arms race in space is no longer just pie in sky academic talk, but it's something which is likely to unfold in the future. Yeah, first I'll touch upon the non-state actor. Um, uh, they are already a reality in a sense, non-state in the form of private sector. And uh, typically, uh, private sector participation has been a predominantly a Western phenomenon, but I think that's beginning to change in Asia as well. Uh, you have a sizable, you have something close to the about somewhere between 80 to 120 uh, private sector firms uh, in the form of new startups uh, or small and medium-sized enterprises in China already, in a country. And uh, even in India, there is a sizable number of private sector firms that are coming up in a big way. So in India, you have multiple levels of uh, players. You have some of the established players like the Larson & Tupro, Godrej, uh, you have the Valchandaga who have been traditionally supplying, uh, you know, uh, components and systems to ISRO, even though ISRO has uh, Indian space program is a state-run program, similarly to similar to China's. Uh, but both countries, even so broadly within Asia, you are beginning to see a change where private sector is becoming a, a reality, so to say. And that's because, at least in the case of India, for instance, there is capacity gap a deficit within ISRO. ISRO is not able to meet the uh, growing sets of demands, whether it is for your tele, tele, telecommunication, tele, uh, telebroadcasting, or uh, sort of um, uh, telemedicine, or uh, agriculture, weather forecasting, whole range of things, and even for commercial and other such applications. And ISRO has its own commercial arm, Antrix. Antrix. Right, and we also have gone on to set up a new entity called the New Space India Limited, NSIL, uh, which I would think maybe would take on some of the job responsibilities that uh, Antrix was doing before. Um, but uh, the NSIL is uh, is seen as an as, as a body that would do a bit of handholding for the new uh, private entities that uh, ISRO wants to engage with. Uh, ISRO has already begun to engage with the, some of the private sector players, precisely like I said, because they don't have the in-house capacity to do. Um, so, for one example, is that the uh, we have a seven satellite constellation for navigation program. Uh, one of the satellites had different problem, and we had to uh, launch a new one for which, again, ISRO did not have the capacity in-house. So they reached out to one of the uh, companies uh, called the Alpha Design, which is a small and medium-sized enterprise, uh, a Bangalore-based company. So they reached out to them, and so they manufactured satellite for them. Second, for some of the propulsion technologies, again, 
companies within Bangalore are beginning to supply capacities to ISRO. This is happening because of the, traditionally uh, ISRO never wanted to share the space with others. And even now there is quite a bit of hesitancy and apprehension. So the ISRO's model is still one of outsourcing and not to create a level playing field for the private sector to be an active player, um, for them to kind of invest in serious R&D. I have argued in my writings to say that, you know, NASA provides a good example. The U.S. space program has, they can rely on a range of private sector players. Yet NASA's importance as a space agency has never gone away. And I think ISRO has to uh, have that confidence to say that we will engage private sector, we will open up the field and R&D can be done by the private sector who has the money and who have the, all the funds and everything, expertise in a sense, they can do it and we will we'll be a facilitator instead of being a gatekeeper, which is what the role today is. So private sector is already, so the non-state act, uh, aspect is already uh, kind of becoming very clear in Asia as well. But uh, I think this is going to become a reality. And I think this is also making the whole process complex. Today, the private sector, for instance, they are also, especially in the Western context, they are also launching military payloads. So that makes it even, so somebody wants to target a military asset, which is launched by a private entity. Would the private entity then be responsible and carry out a counterattack on a particular state? Or how do you do that? One issue. Second is there are also mixed payloads being carried today by private sector. There are mixed, uh, there are both military and uh, pure civil uh, payloads that are being carried. So again, if you want to target a military asset. So these are becoming a lot more complex. It's not very clear. And at the same time, when it comes to the global governance aspect, it is still, um, we have a few uh, treaties and mechanisms in place, uh, but they are proving to be uh, insufficient, I would say, ambiguous and insufficient to meet the current and emerging threats and challenges in space. I want to come back to that point in just a little bit. But you mentioned about the Indian space program and its diversification in recent years. Uh, Historically, it seems to me that uh, India took considerable pains to keep its space program separate from other kinds of related military applications like the missile program, right? The missile program was under the DRDO, while the space program was always under the ISRO. And of course, that was partly because we ourselves were under an international sanctions regime post the nuclear tests of 1974. So you wanted to keep that kind of a firewall. But I'm, if I'm not mistaken, there was a rotation of personnel. I mean, I think most uh, importantly, uh, Abdul Kalam, APJ Abdul Kalam. Yeah, exactly. Dr. Pillai and uh, other scientists who, who, so there was a circulation of information, but at least in institutional terms, there was a clear separation. Now, Post the Indian ASAT tests, do you think that institutional boundary uh, is getting more blurred? In a sense, it's not just the private sector versus the government, but even within the government, the kind of separations which we had uh, are possibly dissolving and may become irrelevant as we go forward. Absolutely. You are very right. And in fact, from I would say, uh, I would even go back to about 2013, uh, August, when India launched the ISRO launched the first dedicated military satellite for the Indian Navy uh, for maritime communication. And since then, there have been three more satellites, dedicated military satellites launched. Um, so I think increasingly these lines, like you said, are getting blurred. Uh, but I think there is also recognition of the fact that we need to separate out because there are growing demands on the military. The military space program is also taking bit better shape. Uh, Indian uh, overall official position has not changed. We still say that space must be used for peaceful purposes alone and peace, uh, space must not be militarized, weaponized. But the fact is that 
India's own military space program is getting a lot more uh, militaristic, uh, military characteristics of the program are evolving in very clear terms. Um, so, like I said, uh, you have four military dedicated military satellites. You have also a lot many more dual use satellites that can be used for given the resolution of some of the satellites, the imagery. Um, so it is kind of getting blurred. But in terms of the institutional architecture, also we are beginning to see more institutions precisely to target the um, uh, uh, the military side of the uh, side of the developments. Um, so we set up in two thousand eight the integ- uh, integrated space cell within the uh, integrated defense staff, uh, Ministry of Defense. That was uh, sort of a, that was the first baby step that we took in terms of integrating the different functions and also to bring about greater coherence and coordination among the uh, agencies, uh, Ministry, uh, Ministry of Defense, uh, De- uh, Ministry of uh, sort of a Department of Space and ISRO, as well as the Armed Forces. Uh, but that was only an initial baby step. It did not really bring about the, that kind of a coherence that was required on the Indian part in terms of identifying what are the requirements, future requirements, what do, what are the kind of capacity buildup that we need to do. Um, so in most recent times, you have seen a couple of other uh, major steps being taken. One was the Defense Space Agency, DSA, that was being set up. Uh, there has been a growing demand for the full-fledged aerospace command, at least from for about close to about two decades. Uh, but I think that's, uh, we are far from it. We're still not, uh, maybe in another few years, we may get around to that. But I think uh, for the immediate term, uh, the, for instance, the former defense minister, Parakhe said, why do we need to create a command first? We need to build up the cap- capacity and then we will go on to establish these commands. So this was part of the three tri-service commands that were to come. These are meant to be the interim bodies before we go on to set up full-fledged commands. So one is the Defense Space Agency under the heading of uh, heading of the, uh, headed by an Indian Air Force officer. You will have a, similarly a cyber, a defense cyber command under the <clears throat> uh, Navy and so on and so forth. Then we are also setting up a something akin to the uh, DRDO, but I think there is also going to be a body that will focus more on the defense space um, R&D, what is required. So DSA will be required, will be responsible for developing the strategy and the other body is going to be in terms of developing the capacity uh, on the ground, what needs to be done. Right. And the Prime Minister recently announced that they are going to create the Chief of Defense Staff mm-hmm. as a single point military advisor to the government. We, I understand that the design of that particular office is currently underway even as we're speaking and hopefully we will have an announcement in the coming weeks. Do you think that will give a greater integrated structure within which some of these activities like the Defense Space Agency, broader planning about integrating of space and military capabilities, possibly doing it in an interagency context as well? I hope that would be the case, but hope is not a policy. And uh, I say this because I think that you already begun to see the kind of resistance uh, from the bureaucracy already to have that kind of a setup where, um, you know, the military would have serious input on how they are the planning and uh, capability buildup. And, uh, and even now the task force that they have set up to uh, implement the decision He's headed by the defense secretary and somebody else. So which already shows that, you know, you have a bureaucrat in charge of the entire process. It should have been ideally somebody from outside who's an expert or somebody who's written, who has talked about the utility of such a body in, true, in the true sense. Uh, but you're already seeing that is not really the case. 
To me, I am a little skeptic on the whole CDS decision. I, I want to be hopeful, but I'm skeptic. My thinking is that the bureaucratic pressure is going to be so much, but I think the bureaucracy will still continue to have a bigger say in how that office runs um, because uh, I don't think they are going to leave it out to a military to have a much more serious input. So that, that's, and that has had a longer kind of input in terms of the civil-military relations. If you look at it, I think this has been part of the problem. Uh, but um, recent reports saying that uh, NSA may actually come out with a national security strategy, um, which, which ab- absolutely they have been talking about and uh, they in, uh, sort of involving the including the anti-satellite capability in a much more proactive fashion. Uh, but my worry is that this is anti-satellite capability is not like the nuclear weapons demonstration capability demonstration. This is something very different. So far, none of the you have four countries now, including India, that have demonstrated an anti-satellite capability, U.S., Russia and China. And India becomes the fourth. And none of the countries have so far operationalized the ASAT capability as by putting it in as part of their warfare doctrine. Um, India wanting to do that seems to be a bit of a extra eagerness. And I think I don't think that is a good sign for me. Uh, I would hope that they don't go into operationalizing because deterrence in space itself has not become reality for most countries. Um, so us pushing that and pushing along that line could actually um, make other countries also follow down, grow, go down that path. Can you expand a little bit on that thought? Uh, in what way does deterrence in space work differently, say, from the way that we think of conventional deterrence or nuclear deterrence? So there is some bit of deterrence in play. For instance, um, why did India do the ASAT test in March? Uh, this was precisely to send a message to China that if you ha- you have the capacity. So we were essentially trying to match up a capability that already exists in our, in our, in our neighborhood. Um, so this was the message was that if you mess around with our satellite, we have the capability to do that to you. We will do precisely that. So that's a sort of deterrence game that India was trying to Mutual do. Mutual assured destruction. Exactly. So if you do this, we'll, we'll have the capacity to do it. Uh, but it is still not space overall has not, the, the ASAT is possibly an exception, but the space has not really been part of the overall deterrence game in a sense within the space domain itself. And uh, the more we don't, we don't talk to each other in the, in the, in the global governance scheme, uh, the more suspicion is going to be like, okay, what is the, what is the, what's the purpose of a particular capability buildup? What are the broad orientation of a particular space program? Um, so I think the need of the R is to have more and more institutionalized dialogues, whether it is track one, track 1.5, or even track two dialogues that can actually help contribute to have a better understanding among countries, because that's become today the bigger problem. There are purely now dual use capabilities. So the Chinese have developed uh, something called the Roman Dragon, uh, which has a robotic arm. The Chinese have come out, at least in the official parlance, to say that this is going to be a capability to uh, clean up the space junk. But everybody's suspicion is that if you are going to be able to have the capacity to move an object because it's a space junk, tomorrow during a conflict, you might mess around with my satellite. You have the capability now. You have demonstrated that capability to you know, shift around space objects. What is the guarantee that you will not do it to me tomorrow during a conflict? Or who decides which object is to be moved around? And these are, again, uh, none of the capabilities are proven asset. NASA is developing certain clean, clean up space debris, cleanup technology. Uh, Australians, uh, there's a private sector that is in, in invested in this regard. There are a couple of uh, European countries. Japanese are developing certain lasers and nets. and So different technologies are being explored. None of these are proven. And we haven't even gotten around to 
the regulatory aspect of who decides what to remove and what not to shift and so on. So there's a, a whole lot of things that are still not explored in terms of legal and regulatory side of the governance aspect. In a lot of your writings, you made the point that India has this unique opportunity and is well positioned to be able to uh, be a norm entrepreneur in this space to suggest and possibly shape norms and generate some kind of a consensus around this. It also allows us to take leadership in a new domain of international global politics. Uh, could you share some thoughts on how exactly do you think India can do that? What what would be the first, say, couple of steps that we should be taking in that respect? So India has been sort of have been proactive in this regard, starting from the 1960s. But our debates were very different at that, that point of time, 60s, 70s, even in the 80s. Uh, it was driven a lot by morality, principle-based approach. Uh, and that from that position, we have come to something more pragmatic today, pragmatic and national security oriented approach to space. Um, so with, and th- that I would think is somewhat more sustainable. And that's put more for India's own position on space debates in the parliament, but also uh, in the within the parliament, but also in uh, it can also be applied to uh, multilateral platforms, how India positions itself on a number of issues. So India's position for a long time, even now, officially, it continues to be that we should move towards uh, developing a legally binding verifiable measure. Uh, These are nice sounding words, uh, but verifiable measure when it comes to space is extremely challenging. Uh, Something to verify in outer space, unless something shoots up there, you were never going to be able to know. As long as a country is developing a certain capability, you will not know. At the R&D stage, you will never know. And that's also the worry, for instance, civil space cooperation. I have again argued saying that we have to have some broad rules of the road uh, because uh, today, countries can access technology in the name of civil space cooperation, developing space capability for weather forecasting, telemedicine, teleeducation. But what's the guarantee that the country is not going to be diverting that capability for developing military space program or even worse to develop ballistic missiles? So there are those worries. So verifying something is extremely challenging when it comes to outer space capabilities. So our position that legally binding verifiable measures are the way to go about um, it hasn't had much of attraction, especially in recent times. Today, I think the biggest uh, in the last over the last decade or so, when you look at the global governance debates, uh, it's not unique to space. It's uh, across the board. You can look at any important international security issue. The biggest stumbling block has been to develop consensus among the major players. And developing consensus agreement among the players today, whether it's on identifying the challenges to ideating possible solutions for the future, both have become a serious issue. So for some countries, for instance, it is, um, you know, arms race is the biggest issue. And I would say that would be a big issue in the in the future, in the, in the coming future. But for some other countries, it might be the space debris, which is already a huge issue. A few years ago, we had an edited book uh, on space global governance issues. And one of the chapters was written by an Ecuadorian space official or agency official. And he talked about his chapter title was It Happened to Us. And he was referring to the space debris that hit their one and only satellite uh, hit by one of these Chinese space um, uh, debris from the 2007 ASAT test. So, you know, space debris is already a huge problem and unless we develop certain means and capabilities to uh to kind of track that aspect and that brings me to the point about the need to have space situational awareness capability ssa so unless you have some understanding a fair amount of understanding 
on the kind of environment that we are operating in, it's very difficult to, you can't rely on the US JSPOC or other capabilities. And especially after the March 2019 ASAT test, this point came out very many times saying that India should have its own. And uh, ISRO has now gone on to set up a SSA division at the ISRO headquarters. Uh, which is first first good step. So the kind of uh, issues we need to have at the global governance level, uh, I've been trying to, again, writing something along these lines to see the what is the role of the middle space powers because the great powers are caught up in their own great power relations and the politics around that, you're not going to see much of a progress. But given the kind of challenges and threats that are already threatening the outer space activities, uh, and if you are if you want to be able to have continued, safe, secure access to outer space, you need to have some measures put, put out there. And uh, India's position in practical terms has become more pragmatic where to say that we might start with transparency and confidence building measures, TCBMs, uh, which are more seen as more political measures. These are voluntary measures. Uh, there are advantages and disadvantages, but I think India has come to position itself as, okay, we may start with a TCBM as an initial first step and hopefully get the build up the political uh, trust and confidence among nations that would actually uh, gradually get us towards the legally binding measures. Um, that's not a b- bad approach, I would say. But I think India needs to India needs to and can take up the leadership role for a number of developing countries. They see India as a developing country who was along with them, whether it is countries in Africa, Asia, Latin America. And today, India is a country that is able to able to do a Mangalyaan, do a Chandrayaan, which a handful of countries have done. So for them. India is a good model to look at and they do look at India and say, okay, this is a great growth story. This is something that we can also aspire to. And so India taking on a leadership role will have a lot more appeal in the sense among a large number of developing countries. And we will put out links to some of your important writings on this in the show notes. Before we sign off, I wanted to ask you if you could think of any book or article or which are listeners could read in order to get a good grip on some of the issues that we've been talking about, not necessarily relating to India, but even perhaps more globally. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, we don't see too many diplomacy aspects when it comes to space, because it has been, like you said, it's a cliched uh, kind of thing to say space is crowded, congested and contested. But I think there are a couple of important reports one would say um, needs to be uh, looked at. One is the uh, Secure World Foundation. They come out with an annual now, second edition of the counter space uh, threats uh, uh, reports have come out. A similar report also is brought out by the CSIS, again, based in Washington. Uh, they do come out with this. But there, I would suggest two important books to look at. One is by John Johnson Fries, who has, again, uh, looked at the overall uh, kind of a competitive phrase, but also emphasizing the need for greater cooperation among states to um, develop certain global governance measures, because otherwise you are not going to be able to use space for a very long time. One another person to track, I think, is uh, uh, James Claymore, based on the Naval Naval War College, uh, who has been doing a fair amount of work on the Asian space program in broader terms as well. Again, making an emphasis on the There are problems. There is competition that is driving a lot of the space programs and policies today. But we also need to look at cooperation and diplomacy, give diplomacy a chance kind of argument. And I think that's uh, important for us to look at. Let's hope things will improve as we go ahead. Rajiv Rajagopalan, it's been a pleasure to have you on Interpreting India. Thank you. Thank you, Srinath. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Interpreting India, a podcast presented every two weeks by Carnegie India. I'm Srinath Raghavan. For more information about the podcast and the production team, you can follow us on social media and visit our webpage, 